Hello, and welcome to New Books in Public Policy. I am Tevi Troy, your host, and in each episode, we talk about a new book in the public policy arena and talk to its author about the public policy implications for what he or she is writing about. This week, we are actually talking to a Hudson Institute colleague of mine, John Fonte. His book, with the provocative title of Sovereignty or Submission, Will Americans Rule Themselves or Be Ruled by Others?, argues that there's a new form of what he calls transnational progressives out there. He says they are the intellectual heirs of the multicultural movement, and they are trying to get America to submit to sovereignty from other nations beyond our borders. It is a provocative title and a provocative book, and I urge you to listen in to the interview and enjoy. John Fonte, welcome to New Books in Public Policy. Thank you, Timmy. It's a real pleasure to have you as a fellow Hudson colleague talk about your book. And I want to talk start and start off talking with our traditional question here, which is, who are you and how did you come to write this particular book? Uh, right. Well, I'm, of course, as you know, work here at the Hudson Institute as a um, senior fellow. Uh, uh, I'm from Cleveland, Ohio, um, and I guess my academic background, uh, I studied history um, Graduate school at the University of Chicago, uh, uh, world history. Um, I was involved a little bit in, in Republican politics in, in Illinois and um, uh, did some teaching, came to Washington in the Reagan administration, worked in the Reagan administration in a uh, volunteer agency um, called the Action Agency, dealt with Peace Corps, and then went to the Department of Education for about nine years during the uh, both the Reagan and the, and the Bush years. Uh, <laughs> Uh, was at the Department of Education, and while I was at the Department of Education, became involved in um, working on civic education and history projects. Um, there was this National History Standards uh, project that was promoted uh, actually by the Republicans. Uh, it turned out to be a mistake, uh, particularly who they put in charge of the project. Um, after those years, um, uh, the National History Standards actually that came out uh, proved to be um, – well, let's just say incorporated multiculturalism, various uh, almost anti-American uh, aspects, and it presented the U.S. a very negative light. So it was an ideological, non-accurate uh, portrait of American history uh, presented by um, it was a gentleman by the name of Gary Nash, who was a professor at UCLA, who had a sort of a record of uh, uh, of a um, let's say an, uh, a historical revisionist, to uh, put it politely. Um, so after, um, once this came out, actually, I worked with Lynn Cheney at the American Enterprise, and we were opposing the National History Standards. This is a project she had helped fund, but she had regret, uh, regretted doing this after the product came out. And uh, the U.S. Senate did condemn the project 99 to 1, but uh, parts of it certainly got out to uh, curriculum and, and uh, throughout um, throughout the United States. I'll give you one example Um of sort of the conceptualization of this uh, of this project, it reconceptualized the United States from uh, the traditional story of uh, people coming essentially settlers, essentially from England um, and uh, from Europe to uh, um, a concept that the United States, the American regime, uh, American liberal democracy, was a, a conglomeration of three worlds. Three worlds met and formed this American regime. The three worlds were. Europe, Western Europe, um, West Africa, I mean, the 
slave trade, the slaves coming, and the indigenous peoples, the Amerindians. So it was essentially a, a combination of three different civilizations, which uh, is essentially not an accurate view of, of American history. I think we could we can say that Arthur Schlesinger Jr., leading liberal historian, was totally appalled with this uh, three worlds con- uh, meat concept and denounced it, as did. Um, Many people, many traditional liberal historians as well as uh, conservatives. Uh, <clears throat> in any case, that uh, um, even today, however, a good part of this curriculum has has endured. Well, uh, <clears throat> this was the age of multiculturalism. This is a long-winded way of, guess, of getting to the book. Uh, but I noticed that multiculturalism essentially morphed into what we could call transnationalism or globalism. <laughs> and by the by, the nineties, by the mid and late nineties. <clears throat> Uh, the same people that had been promoting multiculturalism, like uh, the president of the American Sociological Association. He was a big advocate of multiculturalism. A few years later, he simply was talking about transnationalism, globalism. Well, there may be minorities in the United States, but uh, the, United, the Americans are a minority of the world's peoples. Um, we have to look toward global governance. Um, uh, we're global citizens rather than American citizens. All these ideas then were in the air. Um, in the education field, and then, of course, also in the political field with the creation uh, in the 90s, for example, of the International Criminal Court. Um, so I became, at that point, very interested in what was happening in sovereignty. I was also interested in the immigration issue, but the, the issue was here was, again, multicultural, that the people who came to the United States shouldn't so much be assimilated into the American regime, but retain their... Uh, cultural, political identity, uh, the rise in dual citizenship. So all these things sort of came together. And uh, I wrote some articles on transnationalism. There was a lot of support for it, and eventually uh, came to write this book uh, with sovereignty or submission because, uh, um, as I see it, and the core message of the book is um, – that there's a new challenge to, uh, to to liberal democracy and the liberal democratic regime, uh, and that is from global governance, from people who seek to put uh, global rules and global laws above the U.S. Constitution and above those of other national democracies. I think I've been talking for a long time. I'll let you get a question in here. <laughs> well, thanks. Thanks for that. It's really an interesting analysis that you have that multiculturalism was all the rage, as you said, in the late 80s and, and 90s. And that phrase has seemed to have gone away, and I would posit, and I'd love your, your thoughts on it, is because it, it was kind of unpopular. You, you talked about 99 to 1 in, in the U.S. Senate. I'd love to know who the one is. And do you think it was a specific tactic on the side of the folks who still share the same ideology, but they just thought they had to change names, like putting a, a new coat of paint on an aging house? Well, they shifted name, they shifted battlegrounds. We can't win within the United States. We'll win globally. I think that's even more important. Shifting battlegrounds. Um, they couldn't get a lot of the projects that they want. Uh, one is um, essentially uh, group quotas, uh, let's call it, uh, uh, group preferences, ethnic and racial and gender group preferences. They really, um, you know, they did get some things like affirmative action, but it really wasn't accepted uh, by the American public. But uh, these are all, all, all of these, these ideas of racial, ethnic, gender quotas are built into practically every UN human rights treaty, like the CEDAW Treaty, the Convention uh, for Against All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, is essentially a, uh, a quota treaty in a sense. It, it's uh, what is women's rights is determined uh, by the percentage of women in different occupations and, and, and different uh, uh, institutions throughout a nation. So they, they've shifted the battleground. They couldn't do, do it with the United States. They figured they 
they have a better chance of doing it on a global stage. And if um, if you would accept certain global rules that couldn't be accepted domestically, then uh, there's a chance of uh, <clears throat> implementing their agenda. So I call it transnational progressivism as opposed to national progressive. Franklin Roosevelt and uh, let's say Theodore Roosevelt and um, um, John F. Kennedy, if these people were national progressive, or Lyndon Johnson, they were national progressives. They, the New Deal, the Great Society, they sought to do these things within American society. Uh, we have a new breed now of transnational progressives who um, look at the world stage and look at uh, the world as a battleground to attempt to do these things uh, worldwide. To answer your question on multi, who voted against it, there was a senator from Louisiana who just thought this was silly and we shouldn't be taking up the Senate's time. It wasn't that he was for the I think his name was Ellender, if I remember correctly. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Implicit in what you're saying, though, is that the, these transnational progressives, this new group, uh, is a group that basically would have horrified uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt, um, uh, John F. Kennedy, uh, Harry, Harry Truman, the, the kind of the icons of the liberal tradition would be mortified to see what the transnational progressives are doing, basically in their name, in many cases. Uh, that's uh, absolutely right. I have a whole chapter uh, in the book on this, which it deals with the transformation of liberalism, and um, uh, that's that's uh, yes, that's exactly the case. And one of the uh, <clears throat> things I do in the book to highlight this was to give was to quote uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt's D-Day prayer speech that he gave. Uh, the morning of D-Day, in which he said, uh, our boys are fighting today for our civilization, even said our religion, um, against, <laughs> against this, against this barbarism, essentially, was our, our boys fighting for our culture, our religion, our civilization. That's in my, so that was to highlight the difference between these national progressives and, uh, transnational progressives who I, um, where the national progressives were certainly American within the American context. Uh, I described the new transnational progressives as really a post-American um, and, and not anti-American, although some are. Uh, Howard Zinn or someone like this I could I would describe as an anti-American historian. But many of the people today in um, the dominant forces in American law schools and American foundations are not really anti-American. They don't. Uh, they don't hate America, or they, they see America as obsolete, or the nation state as obsolete. They're post-American. They see themselves as global citizens. You know, America might have been fine for its day. Franklin Roosevelt might have been fine for his day, but we're moving to a new era. We're moving to a global era, and the United States is, will, it will continue to exist, but, uh, we'll have to, it'll have to subordinate itself to, uh, global rules. So, in that, uh, it will be a, not a modern state, but what, uh, European Union Leaders today are calling postmodern states, where they support themselves, where they subordinate themselves uh, to uh, to the global rules of the road. Let's get specific. Who are these transnational pro- progressives? Are there are they represented among the elected officials in, let's say, the Democratic Party? Is Barack Obama a transnational progressive? And and how many of them are there? Uh, I would say the uh, very uh, they represent core elements among the American elite. They certainly recommend. He certainly uh, would include um, leading American foundations. I go through the um, discuss the activities of the Ford Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation, George Soros. Uh, they certainly take a post-American attitude, and specifically, I'll give you some specifics in supporting, say, the International Criminal Court, uh, which would place global law above American law. Um, 
they played an active role in the Durban Conference, which demonized Israel. But their their goal was also was to establish uh, global rules and norms about those of any nation state, including the United States. Israel was a convenient target. So leading American foundations, I would say probably the leadership in, in, in the American academic world. We look at presidents of universities. We look at, uh, I have uh, many, I looked at some of the work of Amy Gutman, who's president of the University of Pennsylvania. And she talks about, um, doesn't, and she really objects to sort of a national citizen, studying about American citizenship, that sub, that American citizens, in American schools, American students learn that they're primarily American citizens. They should learn more that they're world citizens. I'm par- paraphrasing her uh, a little bit here, but it's it's spelled out in detail in the book. And she sort of fudges things, but essentially she's very unclear about saying that American students should learn that they're primarily American citizens. I'm not just picking on her. I would say the uh, leaders, probably many people who rise to the presidency of leading uh, universities, so the university group, certainly a great swath of the American legal community, um, the American Bar Association uh, is promoting UN treaties, which are uh, would, if enacted the way they want them to be enacted, without reservations, uh, would um, would be uh, either if they're they would be at the same level as the Constitution, which means essentially they're above the Constitution. I'll, I'll mention someone specifically. The uh, Harold Coe is the um, um, chief legal officer today, a leading figure in the Obama administration. He's a leading uh, figure. As is his brother at HHS, right? Uh, I don't know that. His brother Howard. Coe. Okay, I don't, I don't know about Howard. He's a senior official. I know, I know, I know who Harold Coe is the chief legal officer at the State Department. So he determines U.S. policy. Well, he doesn't determine. He advocates it. He has to get the approval of the president of the State Department. But he's the leading authority on what U.S. policy should be toward international law. He's the leading guy. And he's essentially said it's the role of American courts to incorporate international law uh, into U.S. law. And he's also said that he's also been an advocate of this transnational legal process, which he says um, incorporates resisting nation states into a legal international legal regime. So he's an advocate, essentially, of international law above U.S. law. He's a leading figure of the Obama administration. There, Anne Marie Slaughter, at, um, currently at Princeton, was head of policy and planning. Um, at the U.S. State Department, she was a leading figure in the Obama administration. She's also advocated um, the creation of global norms and a sort of a global legal regime above a U.S. legal regime. So there are many figures in the administration. Obama specifically, obviously, he's a an elected politician, so uh, he doesn't quite say things directly, but certainly by the people he's appointed, his Berlin speech, where he considered himself a citizen of the world. In this direction, um, well, if there is a second term, I think we'll see a lot of this, these type of activities in a second term. So he's certainly uh, uh, bordering on, and certainly the academic support, the what's called liberal internationalism today is really liberal transnationalism, liberal globalism. All of these folks are writing about establishing international rules that um, that would subordinate. They don't say this, of course, directly, but in effect, it would subordinate the U.S. government. Remember, Senator Kerry, running in 2004, said the United States has to pass a global test. What's a global test? I remember that first debate. Right, yeah, so that means approval of, uh, does that mean uh, John Eikenberry, who's uh, um, the editor of Foreign uh, Foreign Affairs, leading figure at the Council on Foreign Relations, is saying that there 
yes, there should be the U- U.S. should only go to war with, with only with the approval of the of the of the uh, <clears throat> Security Council of the UN. Uh, that there are global rules, and the United States should subordinate itself to global rules. So there's all of these leading academics who are in the Obama administration, or who are or supporters of it, are saying that. So we can we can make a pretty good assumption that this is the direction that the president is heading in. Well, let, let's get back to Senator Kerry for a minute. Yeah. He is the chairman of the Foreign Relations. He's the chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee, and he was pretty darn close to becoming president of the U.S. There was yes. one state that if, if Ohio had voted a different way, he he would have been president. So right. Would you say he's a transnational progressive? Um, yes, uh, or he, he released, you know, 60% there, I'm sure, uh, and maybe 40% uh, traditional liberal internationalist, but bo- mostly a transnational in many ways. I mean, he has supported all of the um, human rights treaties, the uh, um, the UN Women's Treaty, the UN Chi- uh, Children's Treaty. The, uh, he's currently, of course, trying to push through the law of the sea. But uh, all of these human rights treaties, particularly the Women's Treaty and the UN, and the, uh, UN Rights of the Child, would subordinate American constitutional law if we took this seriously. Uh, so he is certainly, I would call him a transnational progressive. Um, even Joseph Biden, through some of his statements when he was in the Senate, um, favored um, UN treaties that are definitely transnational progressive. So this is this is a new stage. This is not... Uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt's liberalism. This is a move beyond liberalism. It's a move it's similar to what's happening in Europe. I have a whole chapter in my book on the European Union, and uh, the European Union is transnational progressivism's par excellence. That's exactly what it is, where uh, the nations have formally uh, subordinated themselves to um, both the European bureaucracy, the European Commission, and the European courts, the European Court of uh, uh, European Court of Justice, the ECJ, and um, if they proceed with this um, fiscal pact, which was signed in December of 2011, if that if, if that it looks like it will be, we'll see. There's going to be a referendum in Ireland. We'll see what happens. But this formally cedes fiscal power, so the power to tax and spend then goes to the European Commission, not to the independent nation states. So if you're a British citizen, you're electing members of the Parliament. Well, they're not going to even deal with. Well, it won't, won't, I'm sorry, it won't involve Britain because they're not a member of the. Uh, they're not in the EU, the EU currency. But the 17 currency member uh, uh, areas, they would actually cede fiscal uh, policy, taxing and spending to the European. Although Britain, even today, has lost 50 percent of its. I mean, the British Prime Minister uh, uh, David Cameron has said that 50 percent of the laws today are, are are made not in Britain in Brussels. So one of his policies was to try to repatriate to take powers back. So Europe is a model for people like John Kerry, for people like um, people in the Obama administration, probably for Obama himself. Europe is a, the EU is a model, and we see how well they're doing. I want to talk about that, actually. You said Europe is a model to the transnational right. progressive folks, but Europe is not doing very well, as, as you just suggested, and uh, there are some very real possibilities that the, the EU could come apart. So what does the currency crisis in the EU say about the future of transnational progressivism and, and what lessons, what, what lessons should we learn from it and what lessons do you think they will take? Right. Well, we're, um, what's happening, of course, is we're, we're headed, I think, for a showdown, uh, within the Eurozone and, and then the whole EU crisis. It's going to be one, we've seen one crisis after another in the last two years. It's just going to get more, there'll be more and more crises. I mean, Greece is, 
uh, in my view, I think Greece will be out of the uh, out of the euro uh, zone uh, at some point in maybe a year or so because it's simply un- it's unsustainable. Uh, they can't go through. Uh, they can't. Uh, economically go through the type of uh, austerity that they're required to do to stay in the union. And the German banks even now are preparing for the exit, although the, um, the political leaders in Europe are, are, are doubling down. They're saying that, well, this just shows that monetary union wasn't enough. We need fiscal union. So it's not just, uh, not just the coining, not just setting a monetary policy, but we need fiscal, we need tax and spend policies, we need budget policies. All this has to be under control of the European Union. Then, um, and then so the monetary union leads to the fiscal union. The fiscal union ultimately leads to the final, which is the political union. There has to be some form of political union because this is uh, this is the only way. So they're doubling down at this point. This is uh, the chair, the head of the uh, European Commission, which is the administrative body. It's also the they also create the laws, although it's a bureaucracy, uh, or they, at least they they propose the laws, and then it's up to the parliament and the. Uh, the, or the Council of Nations to accept or reject it. It's a very complicated system, but it's not what it, whatever it is. It's not a democratic system. It's what they call a post-democratic system. So the lessons are this: this type of um, post-national regime is, first of all, it's not a democratic regime. I guess that's the most important normative point: is that the it being the EU. it being the EU today is not and has never been uh, a democratic regime. So what, there are democratic governments in it. I mean, there are European governments to an extent, or, and particularly those outside the Eurozone, but even some within the Eurozone are, you know, they're democratic governments. But the power of democratic decision-making is shrinking. So the democratic space is shrinking. So they may be in Britain today, maybe a 50% democratic government. In Germany, maybe it's 40%. Uh, in, in Italy, at this point, it's about 15%. We had, they had a democratic government, Berlusconi. Uh, as um, my friend Daniel Hannan, who's a member of the European Parliament, said, it's, they essentially had an EU coup d'etat and replaced uh, Berlusconi with the Eurocrat. Uh, and our, our colleague, uh, Marcello Perra, said, uh, in the Italian government today, there is no member of the Italian government today who is an elected member of Parliament. They're all technocrats, all appointed by the EU in the, in the Monti government. So you can call this a democracy. It's not much of a democracy. Uh, Greece, in Greece as well, they appointed some. Um, so you have these, uh, they appointed some. The Italian government is all appointed technocrats. There's no no connection to the Ameri- to the Italian people. So that's the most important elect. Uh, most important lesson is that the EU is not and has not been and is becoming less so a democratic government. It's uh, it's not anti-democratic. It's not China, or Russia, or Iran. Uh, but it's post-democratic. So um, this is a philosophical matter. Of, by the way, this is where I think uh, Fukuyama is wrong, if you want to suggest it. Can you explain what Fukuyama is? Yeah, Fuki, uh, Frank Fukuyama said that liberal democracy will triumph, and that the, his core argument was that um, in the end of history, um, written in 1989, is that there will be no major ideological challenges to liberal democracy. Um, the Chinese may challenge us or the, uh, revivalize Russia or radical Islam, uh, but they won't get the type of acceptance in the West and in the civilized world, so they will not be, uh, they will not present an ideological challenge. In other words, a challenge of ideas and values. Uh, I contend that global governance is a challenge of ideas and values. It does have wide support in the West, in the civilized world. It has wide support among European elites. It has wide support among American elites. And what they're proposing is sort of a technocratic regime, 
uh, in their view, it would, of course, be global. We need, they would say we need global um, solutions because there are a bunch of global problems. And this is what the EU, we need greater global integration. We need greater post-national integration. That's what the EU is all about. Uh, so this, this has a lot of ideological support in, in the civilized world. It's, uh, the people, I, I love John Bolton's term, the high-minded, capital H, capital M. This is, at, at the EU, at, when he was at the UN, he was fighting the high-minded. The high-minded were our, you know, often our allies. The British ambassador he often had a lot of fights with, or, uh, Western officials in the UN, American officials, people who are American uh, citizens who are either, um, uh, lawyers at Human Rights Watch or Amnesty International or the American Bar Association or the American Civil Liberties Union or UN organizations who are fighting against American national interests. Okay, that was a broad uh, um, um, deviation perhaps from what I was saying, but I think it all sort of ties together. So getting back to the EU and getting back to your question, uh, number one, it's not, it's normatively non-democratic. What are they going to do? They're going to double down. They're going to try to have even more integration. By they, I mean the elites. I mean, and even Angela Merkel represents what is called a conservative party. The German Christian Democrats, uh, which at this point is neither Christian nor democratic. <laughs> it's sort of like the Holy Roman Empire. <laughs> uh, and for that reason, the British conservatives and a bunch of other group parties broke away from this Block this Christian Democratic Block, which calls itself the European People's Party, and they formed a new block, the Alliance of European Conservatives and Reformists. I just came back from Europe. I spoke to them. They would like their their Reagan Thatcherites. They would like a return to repatriate. They don't want. They're not for abolishing the EU. They can see the EU as a as a as a common market for some type of some type of European cooperation and even some institutions. But they would like to return a lot of the nitty-gritty political decision-making to democratically elected parliament. So that's their goal. So they've broken with the traditional so-called center-right parties, which aren't doing this. Um, so, okay, so the European elites will continue to push for this. I don't think it's sustainable in the long run, so I think someday, uh, at some point the Eurozone will collapse. First Greece, later Spain, uh, probably Italy, Portugal, Ireland, at some point will not be in the Eurozone. When this happens, I don't know, but it could be 10, 15, 20 years. But Greece, I think it will happen within a year. Spain, perhaps within a couple years. So that's my prediction, that uh, countries will leave the Eurozone and return to some form of national currency. And again, as Daniel Hannan, um, member, British member of the European Parliament, says what the European elites are really worried about is that once Greece is out, Greece will be better off, even though they may not realize this, this once they're, uh, they return to the drachma or some of their national currency. Uh, they have two major industries in Greece, tourism and shipping. And if they can devalue, they'll be better off. They'll certainly uh, be very – Certainly get more tourists. They certainly will get more tourists. And they'll, their, their shipping industry will maybe be a little more competitive. And, uh, okay, when people see they're not doing too badly, then the Spaniards might rethink or um, Portuguese or some other countries may rethink. And then the sort of the Eurozone uh, – um, uh, starts to unravel. And this, of course, is what the European the EU leaders, the Eurocrats, fear because they see it as a bicycle. You have to keep going forward. You can never go back. Uh, there's no reason you can't go back. I mean, it, it's really not going to hurt them in, in the long run. And, and Germany is a very interesting question because, uh, I mean, given their history, they have endorsed the EU. We're Europeans. We don't want to be bad German nationalists. So we can't do any of that anymore. So, 
uh, they've also, certainly the German elites have wholeheartedly accepted this, but how the German public is going to get tired of paying for this. And the only way this can be sustained is continuous ger- bailout in German money. To do That's the only way this this project can sustain itself, and Germany will go eventually go bankrupt if they continue this. I mean, that's the whole project is now dependent on German money, and then the German taxpayers and citizens may get tired of it at some point. Uh, and... Um, be ready to vote for some parties that don't necessarily want to do this. At this point, all the major political parties in Germany are totally locked into the, the EU system. And, you know, to, yes, they have benefited somewhat from the euro because their exports have gone there. But Germany wasn't doing too badly under the Deutschmark. I mean, their exports were doing okay. They're doing a little better under the euro. But uh, if they have to continually pay for this, then there'll be, there'll be a problem. So I see this thing collapsing at some point in the future. The eurozone, I don't see it lasting. I see... Um, uh, but the European elites are continuing to push for it, so that could have a very bad effect. And yes, it will have some spillover and affect us because it does does affect the world uh, currency. So we're in for some some tough times here. I think. You know, let's bring it back to America yeah. because you mentioned global problems. Right. You said it a little dismissively, saying, "Well, they say there's global problems, but they need global solutions." But there are global problems. Yeah, right? absolutely. I mean, there, there's terrorism and piracy right, right, and pollution. Right. right. <laughs> Do you think that there's no room for transnationalism in that, or, or how would you approach some of these issues? Uh, there's room for internationalism, and always has been and always will be. So I think problems have been solved internationally. To, uh, take NATO, which is obviously an international organization. I make a big distinction in my book between internationalism and transnationalism. <laughs> international and international, so relations between nation states. We've had this... Uh, Wherever we have an international postal union, we have all we have. Uh, we say NATO. We have various trade agreements. Uh, we some are bilateral, some are multilateral. We had the GATT, the General Agreement on Trade and Tariffs, which was a tremendously successful international organization, which lowered tariffs between 1945 and, and 1994. Uh, the GATT lowered tariffs by 90 percent because they wanted to avoid the problems of the 1930s when you had protectionism, uh, which helped to spur the world depression, and so on. So uh, nations voluntarily agree, entered into agreements, they lowered uh, tariffs, and so on. So the GATT was a tremendously successful organization. And this move to the WTO, uh, the World Trade Organization, so we'll see what happens there. So far, so good, but there may be some problems if the uh, there's an appellate body there which might be in a position to uh, issue, uh, uh, deal with individual litigants, and that could lead to some problems. I want to though, get to answering your question. Uh, and in the yeah, context of the question, yeah. can you can you define clearly what is the difference between internationalism and transnationalism? Right. I'll make three. The book. Yeah, yeah, well, good. I do this in the book. Say internationalism is uh, international relations between nations. Nations make agreements. They can repudiate the agreements. They can change them. Uh, but they, they agree to abide by certain rules. That they agree to. Uh, transnationalism, you can think a little bit like the transcontinental railway. It's across nations within. So that penetrates the nation state, and that's, uh, that's a little fuzzy concept, but it's used a lot. But just like sort of the transnational continental, uh, transcontinental railway, it's above the nation. It penetrates. Uh, and in that case, it's, uh, beyond internationalism. And in some cases, there's a loss of sovereignty. The third factor is supranationalism. And in that case, it's supra. It's above the nation state. The EU is a supranational institution. Uh, the International Criminal Court is either, however you want to define it, it's either a transnational. I'll give you specifics here so we can get into something. The International Criminal Court is either a, a transnational or a supranational uh, organization which 
uh, the ability to, um, or are they, which uh, the internet, the ICC International Criminal Court claims the authority over nation states. Uh, if those nation states have joined the court, or even if they haven't, in the case of the United States, the United States has not joined the International Criminal Court. But if an American soldier uh, is accused of a war crime on the territory of a nation that has signed uh, the International Criminal Court, such as Afghanistan, for example, then the International Criminal Court claims authority uh, over over American forces and over Israeli forces who have not signed uh, the uh, is not ratified the court they've signed but not ratified over India these are all I'm mentioning all democracies here the world's largest democracy or over Indonesia the world's largest democracy so the International Criminal Court did investigate America war crimes so-called war crime allegations of war crimes by American soldiers um, in Afghanistan they didn't proceed with the case but they claim the authority to do so they did investigate um, war crime, so alleged war crimes committed by Israelis in the Palestinian Authority. The Palestinian Authority, of course, is not a nation, but the Palestinian Authority went to the International Criminal Court and says, well, we're, we're an entity. We're at the UN. We're almost a nation. We want to be a nation. We're an entity. Investigate these war crimes. So they did investigate it, and they figured, well, there wasn't enough authority. So this is, uh, that's, a, that's, that's transnationalism, okay, or that's uh, supranationalism. The court that claims authority over the nation-states without the consent of the nation-state. Traditional international law, and I'm in favor of traditional international law, I'm not against international law, international law requires state consent. Uh, transnational law or supranational law does not require state consent. So I guess that's probably the best way to define I hope that answers your question. Uh, absolutely, it does, and, and thank you for that. Uh, get, getting to the, the U.S. For, for a moment, I know you are and have been a big critic of uh, U.S. immigration policy, mm-hmm. and uh, you mentioned it earlier in the interview. But can you talk a little bit about illegal immigration to the U.S. and how you see that as a challenge to U.S. sovereignty and what the transnational progressives want to do about this issue? Uh, yes, uh, I have a whole chapter in the book on immigration, which I emphasize uh, basically the assimilation part, which I call patriotic assimilation, the importance of uh, um, people uh, who have immigrated uh, legally to, uh, and if something happens as they become legal, uh, to become um, you know, loyal citizens of the American politic, and this would apply to any democratic state. But, yeah, there's there's different ways of looking at um, at immigration. One is the sort of the assimilationist model, the patriotic assimilationist model, which is, People come here legally, they assimilate, they become uh, loyal members of the new regime. They um, essentially adopt the new country. The other way is sort of the multicultural uh, global governance way. They retain um, loyalty to the old regime, or one is they could retain cultural habits, perhaps, but are not loyalty. Uh, well, there's certainly a big push among the transnationalists, sort of the right of immigration, uh, that you know, people have the right to their in bad economic circumstances. So this is a, a developing right within the global governance movement. that People have the right to immigrate, which is true. You have the right. We don't, we don't believe in the East German model. We People have the right to leave. Eduardo Severin has the right to leave the United States and go live in Singapore if he wants. Can, can you explain who he is? Uh, yes, he was this, um, I guess, one of the founders of Facebook. Is that correct? And a millionaire, and he came here. Um, multi, multi-millionaire. Multi, multi-millionaire, many, many times over. 
Uh, he was in a death, under a death threat in, um, in Brazil when he came to the United States. His life was in danger. He came to the United States. Uh, given our system, he was allowed to make a fortune here. Um, he profited from the system. Uh, but then he got, uh, he said there were too many taxes, I guess. He didn't want to pay all of his. Actually, he didn't say that. He didn't he say said it was not a tax issue. He said it was a regulatory issue. Okay, regulatory. Too many regulations. He decided to move to Singapore where there were fewer regulations. And he wanted to give it, he renounced American citizenship. So that's, that's his right. I, I don't particularly admire him because I think he, uh, he did, um, um, he did benefit from from coming here and, and sort of saved his life, but that's enough. That's I guess that's an aside. I shouldn't we shouldn't be wasting talking about that. We're talking about immigration uh, and what. Um, so there is a, there is a global governance movement to to have a right of uh, essentially of, of immigration, and that means people could. Well, sure, okay. There's a right of immigration, but it's also a democratic right of the country, the receiving country, to set its own immigration policy. That's government by consent of the government. If you set your own immigration policy, people who are coming here illegally uh, are coming here without the consent of the government, because our uh, out the cons- our consent of the government is through rules. It's not you work out with some employer or somebody wants to hire you. Yeah, you have his consent. You've got the the consent of somebody who wants cheap labor, but that's not the government. It's not government by consent of the government in in the through the liberal democratic process. So, in a sense, illegal immigration is a direct challenge to um, uh, to a core doctrine of liberal democracy, which is the consent doctrine. Um, so, I'm in all in favor of a limited legal immigration that we set the numbers. We're probably better off at this point with slight with fewer people. So, at this point, we take in half the world's immigrants, uh, about a million a year. We probably would be fine with you know six hundred thousand might be fine. Uh, we can set the rules. Uh, um, uh, perhaps higher skills, and we certainly should insist upon uh, what we used to call Americanization or, or patriotic assimilation, which was how we were successful, which the national progressives like Theodore Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson and Franklin Roosevelt were all in favor of. So we did have a successful formula in the past. I'm uh, arguing the book to return to that policy. But there is a big global movement. There is even a, a, a treaty. Uh, to to promote um, sort of open immigration and people can go what they want and they have a right to go wherever they want in the world. Your book has a provocative subtitle, which is "Will Americans Rule Themselves or Be Ruled by Others?" What's the answer to the question? Uh, well, I'm saying this is a open. I put a question because it is a question. Uh, and um, what I often hear, and when I'm talking about the, the book and the issue, is. Well, you know, Fonte, what are you worried about? I mean, uh, the UN is not going to tell us what to do. I mean, the European Union, I mean, they could hardly harm themselves. They could hardly defend themselves. They're not going to come tell us what to do. So I don't see any threat here. I mean, what, what's your problem? Um, and uh, my answer is the threat, you're right. It's not from the UN. It's not from the U. It's from American lawyers. It's from the American Bar Association. Uh, it's from uh, American transnational progressives. Uh, their goal is, or, and what, and they're, you know, very effective. They're doing this is to sign, have the U.S. commit to various international treaties. It could be an environmental treaty or human rights treaties. And once these treaties are locked into it, since treaties are the law of the land under the American Constitution, uh, they want these treaties to be uh, non, uh, be self-executing, go right to American courts. Uh, and then they would file lawsuits, lawsuits after lawsuits. Say, this is the law of the land. You're not following the law of the land. So their whole uh, essentially global progressive project, which would include extreme environmental laws, which would include 
um, um, group preferences for ethnic and racial quotas. These are all in the UN treaties. So they can get us to commit to the treaties. Then there's a series of lawsuits. I'm not making this up. Just go right to the American Bar Association has um, right online um, a 200-page document. So it's practically a book on what would happen if the United States implemented uh, the UN Women's Treaties. Uh, this is all, and it's all with the help of, it's all at the American Bar Association document, how, how this would occur. And what they do is they ask a series of questions, hundreds of questions. Uh, let's take, um, you know, corporate boards. What percentage of women are in corporate boards? Well, women represent 50% of the country, but only, you know, 5% of all corporate boards are women. So what are you doing to ensure equality on corporate boards? These are the kinds of questions they are asking. So they're asking a series essentially of group preferences questions on practically every issue, privately every aspect of American life. So that's what, that's ruling, ruled by others. It would be ruled by, um, laws. Essentially, you, we would, I guess, we would in a sense adopt the treaty. So there's some indirect, um, indirect, uh, American approval. But what, what this does is shrink the democratic space. Uh, Legitimate arguments, like we're having an argument over comparable worth, let's say, in, in American, uh, what that is, is, is it, should we explain that for the audience? Please. Yeah. Uh, comparable worth would be instead of equal pay for equal work, it's, uh, uh, comparable work for work of comparable, that men and women should get the same pay if the work is, uh, is comparable. And say a telephone operator and a construction worker, well, that's about the same amount of mental effort. Um, You'd have some government board determining what the wages should be for this particular. That's about the only way you could figure it out. Well, the market wouldn't do it. The market <laughs> would not do it. And I had a big discussion with, it's in my book, a big discussion with a UN rock, uh, uh, a monitor for the women's treaty. And I said, well, how would you determine this? Well, they would have to do, they would have to do it through, uh, uh, um, UN monitors and, and, and this sort of thing. Uh, so the market would be, she said, the market can't trump human rights. I said, what about a democratic legislature that determines, uh, uh, we voted against comparable worth, say, in the U.S. Congress, or we accepted it. It's the Congress decides. She said, no, it's, this is a matter of human rights. It's not a matter of a national parliament. So essentially what they're doing is shrinking the democratic space. The amount of decisions we've made by democratic decision making would be down like it is in Europe today down to 50% or 40% or 30%. So they would shrink uh, what what the, what Congress could do. They would shrink what state governments could do, what the American people could actually do democratically. So that's what I mean by rule themselves. It would be ruled by, by not so much by foreign courts, but by American courts following foreign rules that they agreed to. So that's the big danger. So we would not have self-government as... Uh, Remember, uh, Britain, we think of that as a free country, but uh, they rule themselves in, in about 50% of the cases. 50% they don't. John Fonte, you've been very generous with your time. I want to ask our final question, our signature question here on New Books and Public Policy, which is if you were czar for a day, which I guess would be taking away sovereignty <laughs> to some extent, but if you were a czar for a day somehow magically, what would you do to make sure that America retains its sovereignty and does not enter into a world of submission? Uh, well, the first thing, of course, would be to be aware of this challenge from global governance, but I would say this is a project for a new administration. Uh, uh, we should re- reverse some of our foreign policy. Uh, we should be supporting democratic sovereignty uh, throughout the world. So we should promote it when we promote uh, liberal democracy, and I think that's to an extent still a part of American foreign policy. We should be supporting 
uh, democratic sovereignty, and that means uh, letting government, uh, democratic governments, uh, determine their own rules and laws. Uh, so in Europe, we have to reverse our policy toward the European Union. America, we've been on autopilot. We've had 60 or 70 years of automatic support uh, for increased European integration. There is absolutely no reason today why if there's, let's say, a new Romney administration, the current administration should continue this policy. We should, we should not oppose the re-democratization of Europe. And if this is the view of, of um, people in Greece or Germany or, or Britain, if they want to re-democratize, we should not be supporting as the Obama administration is today, um, sort of this Euro project. I mean, there's no reason why we have to take a position. You can say we're neutral. This is a democratic decision. The democratic uh, decision makers uh, should make. We shouldn't be interfering in. Uh, currently, today, the U.S. government is actually uh, the embassy in France is promoting, let's say, affirmative action and opposing uh, French government policies. Well, they're a democracy internally. They should. We shouldn't be. Uh, our embassy has no business telling uh, uh, the French what their immigration policy is or their cultural policy. So let's support a policy of democratic sovereignty abroad and home. Uh, and not incorporate some of these treaties. And every treaty, uh, I, I, the, the best thing to do is, another another point is, all treaties should be non-self-executing. Uh, that means uh, there's a double, uh, there's sort of a double protection. We sign a treaty, fine. We have a lot of reservations in it, fine. But it's only implemented in American law when Congress acts and imp- actually passes a law to implement that treaty. So it's not a self-executing treaty. You don't go right to American courts. It's non-self-executing. Congress has to act first, put its protections, and that's the way a treaty enters American law. So that's the number one thing we should do. Well, great. Czar John Ponte, thank you for joining us today on New thank Books you, in Public Lieutenant. Policy. You've been listening to my interview with John Ponte, Hudson Institute scholar and author of Sovereignty or Submission. It's a provocative book, as I said earlier, and like it or dislike it, agree or disagree, I think you'll find it interesting. This is Tevi Troy signing off. Until next time, keep reading.